Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And woe to you, Chorazin, he says. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works were that which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in that day of judgment than you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that this it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in that day than for you. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son reveals, wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember, going back to chapter 10, Jesus sent out his 12 disciples. And he told them not to go to the cities of the Gentiles, Samaritans. This is an event that happened while he was still on earth. Told him to preach the kingdom of heaven and that the king is coming <clears throat> to each city and bring in the kingdom. Now they returned and Jesus had been to most of those cities as they, as they approached them. Luke refers to this event also, but he refers to them as 72 being sent out. He said, well, why the difference? You have to understand when God does something, he doesn't just do it to say, well, here's a few people to get this job done. He sent out 72 people, and the 12 disciples were in charge of those 72. Pretty simple, if you think about it. 72 divided by 12 is 6, so it wouldn't be anything at all for six people each just to go in each town and do the things that he told them to do. Either way, they come back to report their successes. But first, Jesus speaks to some of those who in those cities who rejected him. They're being condemned by Christ himself. Jesus begins his rebuke with the word woe. In Hebrew, the word woe is the word oi or hoi. Connected with the word ve, oi ve, it's a lament of despair. Woe is me. Some Jewish comedians might use that word while they're doing their routine or whatever. But here's the thing. It's not funny in the Bible. When God pronounces a woe, he's pronouncing something, a declaration of judgment with no repentance allowed. 
His first condemnation is to two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. These were cities who had done, he had done some mighty miracles in them. And the people of those cities rejected the disciples' message when they came back through them again and therefore rejected Jesus. And remember, in a previous passage, Jesus said, He who receives you receives me. So by rejecting the gospel from the disciples, they were rejecting Jesus Christ. He compares their coming judgment to that of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were condemned for their Baal worship in the Old Testament. And even though King Hiram of, of, of that uh, region helped David and Solomon, David build his palace, Solomon to build his temple, listen to the words of Ezekiel, chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. It came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, she is broken who is a gateway of people. Now she's turned over to me. I shall be filled. She shall be laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her dust from her and make her like a top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It will become a plunder of the nations, and her daughter villages, which are in the fields, will be slain by the sword, that they shall know that I am the Lord. And then the prophecy against Sidon in Ezekiel 28, verses 20 through 24. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Sidon and prophesy against her. And say, Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst. They shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and am hallowed in her. For I will send pestilence upon her, blood in her streets. The wounded will be judged in her midst by the sword against her on every side, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And there shall no longer be the pricking briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among those around them who despise them. They will know that I am the Lord God. These two prophecies actually in history, if you read anything about history at all, came true exactly as they were predicted. In fact, Tyre today is uh, just a rock quarry. A rock quarry. There's no city there anymore. God doesn't send a prophecy that's not eventually going to happen. When he says it, it's going to happen, and we need to take him at his word. Then Jesus turns to Capernaum. And Capernaum, like Chorazin and Bethsaida, were cities north of the Sea of Galilee and places where Jesus had grown up and where he had started his ministry. But they're like the town of Nazareth who were offended at Jesus. They didn't like the fact that this young man was known in the surrounding area, was going around proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. <laughs> well, you can understand that a little bit, can't you? A young man you've known all your life pops up one day and says, Hey, I'm the Christ, follow me. You know, it was a difficult thing. But he didn't just do that with the accompanying miracles to, sh- to prove who he was. To make things even more evident, these miracles that they had never seen before became a scathing rebuke to them when he said, Woe, woe to you. Now he relates Capernaum to Sodom. Now Sodom is a historical model, as we just heard, of the most 
sinful city, the most sinful cities that there are. And we know God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with extreme violence because of their violence in the city and their sexual perversion. So Jesus takes Capernaum to task and says, if the miracles were done in Capernaum, that were done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented. Isn't that amazing? Now he pronounces that for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, the judgment, the judgment to, will be more tolerable for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum than it was in these cities. It'll be awful, more to, excuse me, more tolerable in these cities than for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Why is he bringing such judgment down on these, calling such judgment down on these cities? Well, boys and girls, he asks you to answer that question, and the simple answer. Is just by simply rejecting Christ. Just by simply rejecting Christ. Isn't that awful? What Sodom and Gomorrah did, the, the explanations of it in the Old Testament, what Tyre and Sidon did, the explanation, it's awful. We look at that and we go, oh, that's awful. That's worse than the United States today, if that's possible. But the only thing these cities did is reject Jesus Christ. Think about that. That sounds harsh. But not when you consider the fact that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life and the one person that God and only Christ will God work through to save souls of men and women and forgive your sins. He's the only one. His death on the cross paid a full payment. God looked at the perfect Son of God. He saw perfect blood being shed. And He said, I'm satisfied. That's enough punishment for everybody. Wow. That's something God did. We had nothing to do with it. We couldn't even come up with an idea like that. Look at the religion of the world. What do we come up with? Good works. Maybe God will weigh our good works against our bad works. And maybe... And God says, no, the person that trusts Christ has their sins blotted out forever. Huh? Amen. And then he raised him from the dead to prove the payment was full. Because he'd still be dead otherwise. These cities firsthand saw the very Messiah do things in front of them and still rejected him. They heard him speak as well. They heard him preach. Today, I don't know what goes on over in Israel because I've never been there. Kurt and Kathy have been there. Maybe some of you have been there. But today, we preach Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit. We seek to follow Him as individuals and as a church. To do the things his way. But amazingly, people still resist him today, don't they? The bottom line in this teaching is this. Of what he's saying to these cities. When you hear the word of God, you're required to respond to it. And let me just tell you this. Your response 
is your responsibility. Did you hear that? Your response to Jesus Christ is your responsibility. It's not mine. It's not the messenger of the gospel. It's your response that's your responsibility. Whatever it is you may think that you think you know about the Bible, about church or anything else, when you read the scripture and you see God says, do it this way, live it this way, trust in him this way, your response is your responsibility, not mine, not your neighbor. It's so important to understand that because I can't make anyone become a Christian. I can't make a Christian be obedient. Because your response is your responsibility. One of the preachers in the Great Commission Conference that we went to, I can't remember which one said this, said something interesting in a breakout session. He said this, there's four sermons preached every Sunday in your church. The one you prepared, the one you preached, the one you wish you had preached, and what they hear. Because you've got a grid that you pass everything through. And the problem is, is that a preacher can get up here and preach a sermon to you that's based entirely on the word of God. But unless your response is based on that existing, I mean, if your response is based on that existing grid that you pass everything through. And unless God grants you repentance, that is changing your mind to see the truth. Otherwise, you think it's just the ravings of a Preacher within his own agenda. But it's not. These cities are like that. Jesus could do nothing, even perform miracles, that would, could re- convince these people to repent. Nothing he did convinced these people to repent. Their judgment was sure. When you refuse to do things God's way, meaning that the one who is the way, the truth, and life, obeying his word, you're not a lover of God, even though you profess Jesus all day long. You're not a lover of God. In fact, the Bible describes you as a hater of God. Ooh, that's pretty fierce. But listen to Psalm 81, 13 through 15. Oh, my people... That they would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. But the haters of the Lord pretend submission. Did you hear that? The haters of the Lord pretend submission to the Lord. And their faith will endure forever. God is pleading with people who profess him or profess to be his to listen to him. By not listening to him, they become haters of God, even though they pretend submission. Boy, I tell you, that's a scary thought. Do you know that? Someday, these fakers will end up in hell. And there'll be people that we thought belonged to the Lord and everything was wonderful. But but by lining their lives up with the word of God, we see they're faking it. How sad is that? How awful it would be to say, I'm saved all your life and go to hell. Could that happen? Yes. 
Do I want it to happen? No. Does God want it to happen? No. Does anybody in this church want that to happen? No. That's why we're so pointed with the gospel. But the thing is, is that you need to think about this. Listen to what he said in Psalm 81, 16. After he said their fate was sure, he said, but I would have fed them with the finest of wheat and honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. You see, what God is saying is this. Repentance is always available when you want it. But you don't always want it, do you? Well, God leaves that. I mean, I leave that up to God. That's his deal. That's his problem. I can't, I can get up here and preach till I'm out of breath. I can prepare, I prepare a sermon and then I preach a sermon and there's a sermon I wish I preached. (laughs) But I don't know how you're hearing it. I don't know what kind of grid you're pouring it through. But it's very dangerous to have your own grid when God offers you the mind of Christ. Amen. Now, Jesus turns back to their mission trip. And I, I, I wrote uh, or included in my notes the corresponding passage in Luke where Jesus starts talking to these people when they came back. It says then this in Luke ten seventeen, and send your notes or you can turn there while I take a drink. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in the fact that the spirits are subject to you. Rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in his spirit, said, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the so-called wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he turns to disciples privately and said, Blessed are you eyes to see the things you see. I tell you, many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and not seen it, and hear what you hear and have not heard it. Jesus is rejoicing. One of the few times maybe you hear him just stop and go, get excited about something. <laughs> because most of the time he's afflicted with Pharisees and hypocrites who have nothing but criticism for him. Most of the time. But sometimes you see him getting excited. Getting happy. And then you get happy and say, oh, hundreds of Pharisees came to the Lord today. No. Um, There was all these Sadducees and scribes that finally, finally, finally turned to me. No. All these really wise, wise people... No. What did he say? You revealed it to babes. Now he's referring to a babe here, not as some little kid like this. He's referring to you people here today who admit your ignorance before the Lord. When you come to his word, you go, I don't know anything, Lord. Just teach me. 
That's what a babe is to him. Now, we're not supposed to stay babies in Christ, right? But here's the thing. These men were so, he was so excited that these men were excited about the demons being subject to them. They've cast out demons and the demons were scared to death and took off from the disciples. These puny fishermen and tax collectors. And Jesus said, wait a minute. Is that what the real issue is here? (laughs) No, it's not. The real issue, what you should be rejoicing about is that your name is written in heaven. That's what you should rejoice about. In fact, every Christian in this room ought to get up every morning of your life and say, Lord, thank you that my name is written in heaven. In the role of Jesus Christ's book of life. Because I have Christ. No other reason. Sometimes God uses us in great ways. We should never take pride in that. Not even if the demons are afraid of us. We're just vessels of clay. We're just vessels of dust. Usable for the spirit. And if he weren't doing it through us, it wouldn't get done. I guarantee you. It wouldn't get done. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, All things have been delivered in my hands. It's not the last time he said this, but it was one of the few times he said it. Let me just tell you something. I love it when people go out and witness. I love training people to go out and share their faith. But let me tell you something. Without prayer first and the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing gets done. You're just one dead person talking to another dead person. One pile of dust talking to another pile of dust. But don't ever think you're responsible for somebody's salvation. You're not. You're never responsible for somebody else's salvation. You're responsible to obey the Lord and do what he tells you and witness to that person. And once you've done that, you're done. Now, hopefully you did it in a good, articulate way that they can understand. Hopefully you just didn't go in and say, would you like to have Jesus in your heart today? Yeah, I don't know what that means, but yeah, okay, ask Jesus in your heart. That's not the gospel. When you go out and say, did you know that God has a design for you? And your sin has marred that design. And that design is caused by, that mar of design has caused you to be broken. Broken on the inside and the outside. And that brokenness, you're going to find, try to find every way in the world you can to fix it. Let's go this way, that way. You know, we'll try religion. We'll try drugs. We'll try sex. We'll try this. We'll try that. We'll even try Christianity. And nothing can fix the brokenness inside of you. Except the gospel. And you'll never get over to the gospel until there's repentance and faith. And when you get over to the gospel, that's only the beginning. I'm saved, got my ticket to heaven, got baptized, hallelujah, go to church every Sunday, headed for heaven. Amen, hallelujah, thank you Jesus. And you become a weekend warrior. You see, that's just the beginning of the restoring of the original design of God. 
That's the beginning where he starts restoring you back into the image of his son, which is what he always intended. The Bible says those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? I don't like that word predestination. Sorry, it's there. Here's what Paul said. What shall we say to these things? If God is, who can be? Wow. There's where it is, folks. There's where the power is. Quit looking at each other and arguing with each other about, you believe this, I believe that, and so on. Forget all that. If real Christians would unite in this country, we'd take it back. But real Christians are also Democrats and Republicans. And sometimes we would rather that wear that helmet than our own team's helmet. <laughs> That's not what we're about. You see, no one knows the Son except the Father. If the Father didn't reveal Jesus to you, you're not going to know him, period. And if Jesus doesn't reveal the Father to you, and to whomever he chooses to reveal it, you can't stop it from happening. Certainly not someone else's own salvation. Don't credit, take credit for your own salvation. Don't take credit for your own salvation. You wouldn't want Jesus if God didn't draw you. And God is sovereign in this. You and I are just midwives. We think we've done something because we lead somebody to the Lord. Put a couple of notches on the back of my Bible. Pfft. Silliness. We're just midwives delivering the baby. <laughs> That's all we are. But if you're faithful to him, you will see amazing things that he will do through you. And when you see these things, please just give the glory to God. Don't use the word I in there. I'm preaching to myself here, folks. Okay. Now, in the last three verses of this chapter, Jesus gives an invitation, an invitation on based, on who he, based on who he is and your current condition without him or with him. It's made to the believer and the non-believer alike. Because the chief problem of both is they don't know how to rest. Do you know that? Christians seem to forget that the work of Christ is finished. And they don't know how to rest. There's nothing left for you to do but rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 says, There remains a, therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has ceased from his own works as God did from his. We don't have to sweat and strain to do things and hope God is going to be pleased with us. We don't have to go out and design projects that we hope will please God. Well, we're good Christians. We ought to do this program or that program or this program. God doesn't call us to do that. He calls us to get on our knees, seek his will, and then act when we know it. We don't have to be heavy laden with care and burden all the time. He hasn't stopped loving us just because we're in a tough situation, has he? 
It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Can you say that today? I hope you can. You see, the unbeliever is not at rest. The unbeliever is, even if it's, he's religious and outright rebellious, has no rest in his soul. There's always turmoil. There's always looking for something to satisfy. And nothing in this world will satisfy. Nothing. You can be sure that religion isn't pleasing to God. And you know the violation of God's word that's building up guilt in you before the Lord. Either way, you're not at rest. What's the solution? Take my yoke. Now, the normal definition of a, of a yoke is a big wooden brace that fits across the neck of two oxen, keeps them working together and in control, right? Is that what you think about a yoke when you think of it? Okay. Well, I got some news for you. A yoke was also considered in Scripture a form of teaching. A form of teaching. Listen to what Acts 15.8, Peter's explaining when he went to the Gentiles. It says, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving the Holy Spirit as he did us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers were able to bear? What, what's that talking about? It's talking about the law. And then Paul said in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke, a teaching of bondage. Do you see that God wants you to be free? What, the, what, what, what of the yoke that Jesus gives? He says, learn of me. <laughs> I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest to your souls. My yoke, my teaching, my salvation is easy for you. My burden is light for you. Is your yoke easy today? Are you as a Christian carrying around burdens you were never meant to carry? Being so concerned that things just get done Instead of just giving it over to the Lord. Come to Jesus. Be freed from this yoke. I'm not asking you to get saved again if you're a Christian. I'm not asking you to do that at all. Release your burden to Jesus. Release your burden to Jesus. You don't have to carry it around. You say, John, I don't know how to do that. It's not a do. It's a done. It's not a do, it's a rest. Jesus is sovereign over everything in our lives. Everything. Nothing comes your way that surprises Him. If you turn and cast it on Him, or as I tell my wife all the time, which I should have done a while ago, she's out on the road. 
lay down on his promises. <laughs> Be connected to Jesus. If you're here as a religious person, even some Baptists can be very religious sometimes, always worried about whether you're pleasing him or not. Most likely, if that's all that you are, you are probably not even saved. You have not come to the foot of the cross and rested yet. You have and can do so today. Just admit to him that you're faking it. You're faking it. Just admit it to him. I tell him all the time, Lord, I'm such a hypocrite. I don't see how you can use me. But I won't fake it. I'm just going to be honest with you about my sins. And then he turns around and he's brutally honest with me about ones I didn't even think of. <laughs> Take the free gift and rest. I'm not trying to make anybody here doubt their salvation, but maybe you're here and you've been living a life of direct disobedience. That is an unsaved person. And you too can come. He's ready to receive you. Listen to what Jesus said in John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe in him, like those cities, already condemned. Because they've not believed in his name. So regardless of who you are today, don't come to me. I can't save you. I'm not saying don't come down here. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love for us just to go around this whole room and hold hands and sing, Blessed be the tie that bind. I'd love to do that. It's a, it's a sign of unity. You want to do it? Do you? Okay. In a minute. But if you come here, Come to surrender. Come to Jesus. Let everybody know you're choosing him. Taking his yoke. Today.